Chapter One of Septimus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. Septimus by William John Locke. Chapter One. I love Nunsmere, said the literary man from London. It is a spot where faded lives are laid away in lavender. "'I'm not a faded life, and I'm not going to be laid away in lavender,' retorted Zora Middlemist. She turned from him and handed cakes to the vicar. She had no desire to pet the vicar, but he was less unbearable than the literary man from London whom he had brought to call on his parishioners. Zora disliked to be called a parishioner. She disliked many things in Nunsmere. Her mother, Mrs. Oldreeve, however, loved Nunsmere, adored the vicar, and found awe-inspiring in his cleverness the literary man from London. Nunsmere lies hidden among the oaks of Surrey, far from the busy ways of man. It is heaven knows how many miles from a high road. You have to drive through lanes and climb right over a hill to get to it. Two old Georgian houses covered with creepers, a modern Gothic church, and two much more venerable and pious-looking inns, and a few cottages settling peacefully around a common form the village. Here and there a cottage lurks up a lane. These cottages are mostly inhabited by the gentle classes. Some are really old, with great oak beams across the low ceilings, and stone-flagged kitchens furnished with great open fireplaces, where you can sit and get scorched and covered with smoke. Some are new, built in imitation of the old, by a mute inglorious Adam, the village carpenter. All have long casement windows, front gardens in which grow stocks and flocks and sunflowers and hollyoaks and roses, and a red-tiled path leads from the front gate to the entrance porch. Nunsmere is very quiet and restful. Should a roisterer cross the common singing a song at half-past nine at night, all Nunsmere hears it and is shocked, if not frightened to the extent of bolting doors and windows, lest the dreadful drunken man should come in. In a cottage on the common, an old one added to by the local architect, with a front garden and a red-tiled path, dwelt Mrs. Oldreeve in entire happiness, and her daughter in discontent. And this was through no peevish or disagreeable traits in Zora's nature. If we hear Guy Fawkes was fretful in the little ease, we are not pained by Guy Fawkes' lack of Christian resignation. When the vicar and the literary man from London had gone, Zora threw open the window and let the soft autumn air flood the room. Mrs. Oldreeve drew her woollen shawl around her lean shoulders. "'I'm afraid you quite snubbed Mr. Rattenden, just when he was saying one of his cleverest things.' "'He said it to the wrong person, Mother. I am neither a faded knife, nor am I going to be laid away in lavender. Do I look like it?' She moved across the room swiftly, and stood in the slanting light from the window, offering herself for inspection. Nothing could be less like a faded life than the magnificent, broad-hipped, full-bosomed woman that met her mother's gaze. Her hair was auburn, her eyes brown with gold flecks, her lips red, her cheeks clear and young. She was cast, physically, in heroic mould, a creature of dancing blood and colour and warmth. Disparaging tea-parties called her an Amazon. The vicar's wife regarded her as too large and flaring and curvilinear for reputable good looks. She towered over Nunsmere. Her presence disturbed the stateness of the place. 
she was a wrong note in its harmony. Mrs. Oldreeve sighed. She was small and colourless. Her husband, a wild explorer, a tornado of a man, had been killed by a buffalo. She was afraid that Zora took after her father. Her younger daughter Emmy had also inherited some of the Oldreeve restlessness and had gone on the stage. She was playing now in musical comedy in London. "'I don't see why you should not be happy here, Zora,' she remarked. "'But if you want to go, you must. "'I used to say the same to your pure, dear father.' "'I've been very good, haven't I?' said Zora. "'I've been the model young widow, and lived as demurely as if my heart were breaking with sorrow. "'But now I can't stand it any longer. "'I'm going out to see the world.' "'You'll soon marry again, dear, and that's one comfort.' Zora brought her hands down passionately to her sides. "'Never!' Never, do you hear, mother? Never. I'm going out into the world to get to the heart of the life I've never known. I'm going to live. I don't see how you're going to live, dear, without a man to take care of you, said Mrs. Oldreeve, on whom there occasionally flashed an eternal verity. I hate men. I hate the touch of them, the very sight of them. I'm going to have nothing more to do with them for the rest of my natural life. My dear mother, and her voice broke, haven't I had enough to do with men and marriage? "'All men aren't like Edward Middlemist,' Mrs. Oldreeve argued, as she counted the rows of her knitting. "'How am I to know that? How could anyone have told me that he was what he was? For heaven's sake, don't talk of it. I had almost forgotten it all in this place.' She shuddered, and, turning to the window, stared into the sunset. "'Lavender has its uses,' said Mrs. Oldreeve. Here again it must be urged on Zora's behalf that she had reason for her misanthropy. It is not cheerful for a girl to discover within twenty-four hours of her wedding that her husband is a hopeless drunkard, and to see him die of delirium tremens within six weeks. An experience so vivid, like lightning, must blast something in a woman's conception of life. Because one man's kisses reeked whisky, the kisses of all male humanity were anathema. After a long spell of silence, she came and laid her cheek against her mother's. This is the very last time we'll speak of it, dear. I'll lock the skeleton in its cupboard and throw away the key. She went upstairs to dress and came down, radiant. At dinner she spoke exultingly of her approaching freedom. She would tear off her widow's weeds and deck herself in the flower of youth. She would plunge into the great swelling sea of life. She would drink sunshine and fill her soul with laughter. She would do a million hyperbolic things, the mention of which mightily confused her mother. I, my dear, said the head in the fairy tale, never had the faintest desire to get into water. So, more or less, said Mrs. Oldreeve. Will you miss me very dreadfully? asked Zora. Of course. But her tone was so lacking in conviction that Zora laughed. Mother, you know very well that Cousin Jane will be a more sympathetic companion. You have been pining for her for all this time. Cousin Jane held distinct views on the cut of underclothes for the deserving poor, and, as clouds dispersed before the sun, so did household dust before her presence. Untidiness followed in Zora's steps, as it does in those of the physically large, and Cousin Jane disapproved of her thoroughly. But Mrs. Oldreeve often sighed for Cousin Jane, as she had never sighed for Zora, Emily, or her husband. She was more than content with the prospect of her companionship. "'At any rate, my dear,' she said that evening, as she paused, candle in hand, by her bedroom door, 
At any rate, I hope you'll do nothing that is unbecoming to a gentlewoman. Such was her benison. Zora bumped her head against the oak beam that ran across her bedroom ceiling. It's quite true, she said to herself. The place is too small for me. I don't fit. What she was going to do in this wide world, into whose glories she was about to enter, she had but the vaguest notion. All to her was the beautiful unknown. Narrow means had kept her at Cheltenham and afterwards at Nunsmere all her life. She had met her husband in Ipswich while she was paying a polite visit to some distant cousin. She had married him off-hand in a whirl of the senses. He was a handsome blackguard of independent means, and she had spent her nightmare of a honeymoon at Brighton. On three occasions during her five-and-twenty years of existence she had spent a golden week in London. That was all she knew of the wide world. It was not very much. Reading had given her a second-hand acquaintance with the doings of various classes of mankind, and such pictures as she had seen had filled her head with dreams of strange and wonderful places. But otherwise she was ignorant, beautifully, childishly ignorant, and undismayed. What was she going to do? Sensitive and responsive to beauty, filled with artistic impulses, she could neither paint, act, sing, nor write pretty little stories for the magazines. She had no special gift to develop. To earn her living in a humdrum way, she had no need. She had no high Ibsenite notions of working out her own individuality. She had no consuming passion for reforming any section of the universe. She had no mission, that she knew of, to accomplish. Unlike so many of her sex who yearn to be as men and go out into the world, she had no inner mandate to do anything, no ambition to be anything. She was simply a great, rich flower, struggling through the shade to the sunlight, plenty of sunlight, as much sunlight as the heavens could give her. The literary man from London happened to be returning to town by the train that carried Zora on the first stage of her pilgrimage. He obtained her consent to travel up in the same carriage. He asked her to what branch of human activity she intended to devote herself. She answered that she was going to lie anyhow among the leaves. He rebuked her. We ought, said he, to justify our existence. She drew herself up and flashed an indignant glance at him. I beg your pardon, he apologised. You do justify yours. How? You decorate the world. I was wrong. That is the true function of a beautiful woman, and you fulfil it. I have in my bag, replied Zora slowly, and looking at him steady-eyed, a preventative against seasickness. I have a waterproof to shelter me from rain. But what can I do to shield myself against silly compliments? Adopt the costume of the ladies of the Orient, said the literary man from London, unabashed. She laughed, although she detested him. He bent forward with humorous earnestness. He had written some novels, and now edited a weekly of precious tendencies and cynical flavour. I am a battered old man of thirty-five, said he and I know what I am talking about. If you think you are going to wander at a loose end about Europe without men paying you compliments and falling in love with you and making themselves generally delightful, you are travelling under a grievous hallucination. What you say, retorted Zora, confirms me in my opinion that men are an abominable nuisance. Why can't they let a poor woman go about in peace? The train happened to be waiting at Clapham Junction. A spruce young man, passing by on the platform, 
made a perceptible pause by the window, his eyes full on her. She turned her head impatiently. Rattenden laughed. "'Dear lady,' said he, "'I must impart to you the elements of wisdom. Miss Kazir scaffolds with brain cordage for hair and monoliths for teeth and a box of dominoes for a body can fool about unmolested among the tribes of crim Tartary. She doesn't worry the Tartars. But permit me to say, as you are for the moment my disciple, a, a beautiful woman like yourself radiating feminine magnetism worries a man exceedingly. You don't let him go about in peace, so why should he let you? I think, said Zora, as the train moved on, that Miss Kazir's scaffolds is very much to be envied, and that this is a very horrid conversation. She was offended in her provincial-bred delicacy. It was enough to make her regard herself with repulsion. She took up the fashion paper she had bought at the station. Was she not intended to run delicious riot among the dressmakers and milliners of London? And regarded blankly the ungodly wasted ladies in the illustrations, determined to wear a wig and paint her face yellow and black out one of her front teeth, so that she should not worry the Tartars. "'I'm only warning you against possible dangers,' said Rattenden stiffly. He did not like his conversation to be called horrid. "'To the race of men?' "'No, to yourself.' She laughed scornfully. "'No fear of that. Why does every man think himself irresistible?' "'Because he generally is, if he wants to be,' said the literary man from London. Sora caught her breath. "'Well, of all,' she began. "'Yes, I know what you're going to say. Millions of women have said it and eaten their words. Why should you, beautiful as you are, be an exception to the law of life? You're going out to suck the honey of the world, and men's hearts will be your flowers. Instinct will drive you. You won't be able to get away from it. You think you're going to be thrilled into passionate raptures by cathedrals and expensive restaurants and the set pieces of fashionable scenery.' You're not. Your store of honey will consist of the emotional experiences of a primitive order. If not, I know nothing at all about women. Do you know anything about them? she asked sweetly. More would be becoming of me to tell, he replied. Anyhow, he added, that doesn't matter. I've made my prophecy. You'll tell me afterwards, if I have the pleasure of seeing you again, whether it has come true. It won't come true, said Zora. "'We shall see,' said the wise man. She dashed that afternoon into her sister's tiny flat in Chelsea. Emily, taken by surprise, hastily stuffed to the bottom of her work-basket a man's silk tie which she was knitting, and then greeted Zora affectionately. She was shorter, slimmer, paler than her sister, of a certain babyish prettiness. She had Mrs. Oldreeve's weak mouth and gentle ways. "'Why, Zora!' Who would have thought of seeing you? What are you doing in town? Getting hats and frocks, a trousseau of freedom. I've left Nunsmere. I'm on my own. Her eyes sparkled, her cheeks were flushed. She caught Emily to her bosom. Oh, darling, I'm so happy. A bird let out of a cage. An awful big bird, laughed Emily. Yes, let out of an awful small cage. I'm going to see the world for the first time in my life. I'm going to get out of the cold and wet going south to Italy, Sicily, Egypt, anywhere. All by yourself? There'll be Turner. Turner? Ah, you don't know her, my new maid. But isn't it glorious? Why shouldn't you come with me, darling? Do, come. 
and throw up my engagement? I couldn't. I should love it, but you don't know how hard engagements are to get. Never mind, I'll pay for everything. But Emily shook her fluffy head. She had a good part, a few lines to speak, and a bit of a song to sing, in a successful musical comedy. She looked back on the two years' price she had paid for that little bit of a song. It was dearer to her than anything, save one thing, in life. I can't. Besides, don't you think a couple of girls fooling about alone looks rather silly? It wouldn't really be very funny without a man. Zora rose in protest. The whole human race is man-mad, even mother. I think everybody is detestable. The maid announced, Mr. Morton Prince. And a handsome man, with finely cut dark features and black hair parted in the middle and brushed tightly back over the head, entered the room. Emmy presented him to Zora, who recognised him as the leading man at the theatre where Emmy was playing. Zora exchanged a few polite commonplaces with the visitor, and then took her leave. Emmy accompanied her to the front door of the flat. "'Isn't he charming?' "'That creature?' asked Zora. Emmy laughed. "'In your present mood you would find fault with an archangel. Good-bye, darling, and take care of yourself.' She bore no malice, having a kind heart, and being foolishly happy. When she returned to the drawing-room, the man took both her hands. "'Well, sweetheart? My sister wanted to carry me off to Italy.' "'What did you say?' "'Guess,' said the girl, lifting starry eyes. The man guessed, after the manner of men, and for a moment Emmy forgot Zora, who went her own way in pursuit of happiness, heedless of the wisdom of the wise and of the foolish. End of chapter 1